Right now, it's Barry and Shauna Replay from 89.3 Moody Radio. Well, we are so excited about this morning because, of course, it's Freedom Friday. And on Freedom Friday, we love to share the stories of God's redemption. And we have an amazing story of that for you today. Dr. Jeremy Gordon Grinnell is uh, with us today. He earned his Ph.D. in systematic theology at Calvin Seminary, taught theology for nearly 15 years at Grand Rapids Theological Seminary. He was the preaching pastor at Bella Vista Church in Rockford, went through just a, a really broken season in his life, struggled through an emotional affair combined with a near-fatal clinical depression in 15 seconds. He threw it all away in the most public way possible, but God has restored. Uh, Jeremy, it's just so good to have you with us. Thank you, Perry. Yeah. So where did you grow up? Well, I my father's actually, to this day, still a pastor. And uh, so I grew up south of Ann Arbor, little town of Milan, uh, okay. with dad in a little country church of about 200 people. Michigan fan? Um, not so much. Okay. Just not a big, yeah, not a big sports guy. Doesn't do was. that for you. Yeah. So the green and the blue, that whole debate, I, I just, you know, I don't have a horse pass, in that race. Hard pass. Yeah, I more or less. So it's a soft pass. I can appreciate, but I never, I never get involved in people's religions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's what it is. It's a religion. So you grew up in the Ann Arbor area and yes. your dad, dad was a pastor. So a PK. Yes. Very much so. Said I'd never do it. Yeah. Never yeah. be a pastor. I'd never be a new. No, I'd seen it from the inside out, but God, you know. God, God laughed at me. Yeah, yeah. So, so how did Jesus work in your life? You know, from the early years going up through, you know, as being at home and then to college. Sure. Well, I, of course, had uh, I had the gospel modeled for me every Sunday and in my family. My my father to this day is one of the finest shepherds. Uh, so I understood, you know, the nature of sacrifice and the nature of grace. You know, watching him shepherd his flock. Uh, in fact, we we still to this day laugh about the fact that when the when the phone rings at three in the morning, they had this ritual. My mom and dad that dad would immediately get out of bed and put on his pants. Mm. He thought he was going to the hospital. Mom would answer the phone, and then if it turned out to be something else, she'd wave him back to bed. I mean, that's just the kind of man mm. he, wow. you know he is. Yeah. And uh, and I said I don't I don't have the moxie for that kind of thing, so I can't. I don't want to get up at three a.m. Um, so I. You know, I, w- I became a Christian very young. Mm-hmm. I was one of those who prayed the sinner's prayer probably a thousand times because, sure. you know, every invitation at church on Sunday because I wanted to make sure it stuck. Yeah. Uh, and then, <laughs> you know, I went off and studied theater and uh, mm, nice. in, in college. That's yes, right. And, uh, and not knowing bio. how little there, how not knowing mm-hmm. or knowing very little how much crossover there was uh, between um, what happens on stage in a theater and often what happens on stage in a Sunday. Mm-hmm. Which is a mixed bag, if you think about it. You know, sure. it's, it's a blessing and a curse. But uh, God was good. Took me through. Uh, did my undergraduate work at Cedarville College. Then oh, nice. Went to seminary just to keep the gears lubricated. Took a mm-hmm. class. Fell in love with systematic theology with old Uncle Joe Crawford at GRTS. And uh, and really, I said, this is what I want to do. <laughs> so, w- was there a point when you really had to make your faith your own? You know, you had your parents' faith. And I know for me, growing up as a believer, I certainly soaked in a lot from my parents, but there were defining moments for me. And I think that's the right way to say it. There was there were defining moments. And you have to leave it sort of to the, the providence of God, the knowledge of God to sort of pick out, you know, which ones played which role. But as I said, there were moments in my childhood. Uh, I had some, you know, relational difficulties in high school where I had to sort of come to grips with my, you know, who am I? You know, I think every teenager goes through that. Oh yeah, and then toughest uh, years of my life. Exactly. Yeah, I wouldn't. I I, I both want to go back and would not relive them kind oh, of yeah. at the same time. Right, right. I feel you on that one. Yeah. Like going back, knowing what I know now. Yeah, if, sure. If I could. But yeah, no. But re- I, ironically, though, I had a very deep faith uh, and took my Bible classes at Cedarville very seriously, and and. Um, you know, participated in a, a lot of a lot of things there. It was actually seminary, ironically, mm-hmm. that made me really sort of pause and sort of emotionally ground my faith in a way that was actually livable. Before that, I, mm-hmm. I'll confess, it was a rather a 
was a rather legalistic set of rules that you were sort of playing mm-hmm. out in life. And then mm-hmm. I went to se- seminary and sat under some really good teachers there and saw it lived in a different way. And I went, oh, the, if this is what the gospel is, mm-hmm. if this is if it's a if it's less a religion and more of a way, mm-hmm. a way of being human right. and a way of living and being in the world, I can do that. I mean, I want to do that. That's yeah. part of what I do. So I, I really look, again, to Uncle Joe's uh, systematic theology classes, ironically, as the thing that brought me to faith, mm. which I say ironic because so many people think of theology as the distraction from right. faith. People lose their faith and, when they go to seminary. And it's, it's why they call it cemetery. So, and, and that's true. I mean, people have had those experiences, and I don't knock them. But for me, it was exactly the opposite. It was, it was water in a parched ground. Yeah. And uh, that's, that's where I really found the God that I could follow. Yeah. Mm. And praise God that we're going to get to hear more of your story as the morning unfolds, but you know, praise God for that moment and the opportunity to sit under uncle Joe, did you call him? Dr. Uncle Joe. Joe yeah. Uncle Albert Joe? Crawford. Yep. But uh, there you got the opportunity to sit under some great teaching of grace, powerful teaching of grace mm-hmm. in the story of your life. And so thank you for being here this morning, for sharing your story. We're excited to hear how God restored yeah. And, and yeah, I was just going to pick it up where you left off there, Shauna. <laughs> so I just left it off so you could <laughs> you pick just, it up. <laughs> I saw the hands moving over there and I was like, oh, Perry wants me to stop talking. No, no. You know that you know the cues, right? I do. You're doing all the cues. Mm-hmm. Okay. I was just going to say, I mean, we get blindsided by life in one way or another. And you got blindsided in a big time way. And, but it's a story of redemption. I shared with us a few minutes ago, Jeremy, how you grew up a PK, gave your life to Jesus very early on. Um, but there was a point at which the story changed. Yes. Catch us up um, on where kind of like where this book came from out of your heart and what your story is. Well, I mean, my story is a hard story to tell briefly, but we'll give you the, give you the short strokes and then you can climb into it however you wish. But in the process of ministry, um, found myself in a situation where my wife and I were trying to help a a single mom, lots of kids uh, going through a foreclosure, uh, lots of legal troubles, things like that. And, uh, I've, I found, when I say I found myself, but there were choices at every step, right? Mm-hmm. Choices I made. And I found myself in an emotional affair with mm-hmm. this woman, got mm-hmm. obsessed with helping her family and then eventually obsessed with her. And I didn't even know, I didn't, had never heard the term emotional affair. I didn't even know what it was. Uh, and in, in short, it's, it's just like a physical affair. There's just no, there's no physicality. You know, you don't, you don't touch each other, but all the emotional bonding, all of the, the, the you know, the late night texting, the deep mm-hmm. conversations, all right. that, where you begin to bond with a person who's not your spouse. And of course, my wife watched all this happen in slow motion and realized very quickly I was over my head. Um, it was too deep, but by then the emotions are running high. And over the course of the next 10 months, um, everything kind of went to pot. Mm-hmm. Um in every, in every direction. My health broke. I found myself uh, clinically depressed in therapy on antidepressants, marginally suicidal over this relationship that I couldn't escape and kind of didn't want to. Mm-hmm. And by the end of 10 months and, and hiding the whole time, because, you know, if any of this comes out, if anybody discovers it, you're out of your job, out of your career. Because at this time you're teaching at GRTS. Yes. And you're a pastor at Bella Vista. Yes. And my students are watching me burst into tears randomly in class and don't know why. My parishioners are watch congregants are, are listening to me preach sermons out of Habakkuk. You know, <laughs> about the darkness of the night. And they're wondering what's going on. Mm. Um, Psalm 88. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Darkness is my only friend. Right, and, right, right. And, and it's just, it's all degenerating, but all all in the closet. And so, uh, and then I go from, kind of in one night, I go from a productive member of society, uh, reduced to basically a peeping Tom outside her bedroom window. Mm. And in 15 seconds, it all gets thrown away. Mm. Uh, criminal uh, invasion of privacy charges, your name in the newspaper, Resignation from the church, resignation from the seminary, and it all goes away. Hmm. And you sit in your living room, yeah, staring at a wall. So, I mean, it was a, you know, it's a 10-month, 12-month journey reduced to a minute and a half. Um, 
But in some ways, in hindsight, it felt that fast. Wow. So looking back now, I know that you have done, you know, this didn't happen last week and you have done a ton of hard work <laughs> to this be was where like you are today. 10 years ago. Yeah, nearly. Yeah. Nearly. Um, but you mentioned in your notes to us just kind of your background and how this kind of all surfaced, like knowing what you know now as you look back, what were the decisions along the way or the, you know, the, that you can see now as red flags that you couldn't see then as you were walking it out? Well, I, it really was a study. My area of specialty was humanity and sin. Those are my, my the areas I wrote my dissertation in. And I, I didn't actually realize I was going to be doing so much field research. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it really was a study in, uh, um, you know, Luther talked about the sinner as uh, in curvatus in se, curved in on themselves. Yeah, yeah. And you find yourself busy in ministry, um, not taking care of yourself. I didn't, I was fairly new at the church. I'd only been there two years and I had neglected building networks of people who mm. would be looking out for me, uh, who were taking care of my soul. I was busy. Uh, we'd had another, our fourth child, our, our last child had come into the scene. So we were, I was drained, you know, how new children are. And that seems to be a, you know, that seems to be a moment, you know, that the devil takes advantage of when there's high stressors on a, on a marriage. So we were having some, you know, some of those, some natural struggles, but the kinds of struggles you have at that time. And um, I was actually offered opportunities for escape at every moment. But mm -hmm. the deeper you get, the more terrifying those exits appear. Mm. What would yeah. a moment of exit look like? I actually, I had the church counselor, a dear friend of mine, sweet uh, elderly lady, came and at one point sat down in my office because mm. the, the, the woman with whom I had the obsession was actually a part-time employee of the church. She didn't report to me, but she did administrative work for me and things like that. So she, I'd find myself down in the office, you know, mm. having a cup of coffee and talking for hours and hours and hours. And she came and sat down in my office and, you know, what's going on? This doesn't appear healthy. And I, mm. both in a state of fear and self-deception, told her, it's all fine. We're just friends. And in the moment, my heart of hearts, I meant it. Mm. But I've learned that self-deception is something you have to work very hard at. Because truth has a way of coming back to you frequently. And to remain self-deceived, you have to continue to lie to yourself. And I found myself continuing to lie to myself about the nature of this relationship out of a sense of self-preservation. As long as I could tell myself, we're just friends. You know, I've, we've never touched each other. It's never been anything like that. Um, then it was okay. Then it was, it was ministerial. Mm -hmm. I was, you know, it's my job. I'm supposed to help people. Here's a suffering, hurting, you know, single mom with a bunch of kids. Uh, it's my job to help such a person. And as long as I could keep that fiction up on the inside of my head, I could keep it up on the outside. And I was popular enough and good enough at my job that people believed me. Mm -hmm. And a church counselor can't push back against a popular pastor very easily. All right. So, Jeremy, uh, we, you've shared your story uh, several minutes ago. Mm -hmm. But just, just to recap, you know, what happened in your story that led to really just being publicly shamed? Well, yeah, I, uh, as I mentioned, I, we, uh, were helping a single mom through a difficult time and I lost control, lost, um, lost track of the boundaries and got emotionally involved with her and her family. Um, it was so deep in that I was ready to leave my own wife and kids to, you know, go be with her if the opportunity arose, but living in hiding and fear, because that's really incompatible with what I, what I did for a living mm -hmm. until it all came out in, uh, you know, in an invasion of privacy charge. I got too close. Uh, I was in the wrong place, wrong time, and uh, didn't walk away. Yeah. And it all hit the papers. You were actually looking in a window. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where I, I you were caught doing that. And then the police, what happened? Well, yeah, it, it's, it's a very, the rehearsal of all the details get muddled at this stage of the journey. But the, the, the fact is they, they didn't know who it was. I, you know, I was there. I was there, shouldn't have been, and I was there, looked in the window, and they didn't know who it was, uh, but they filed a police report, and I uh, came back the next night and apologized. Mm. Um, you know, they had invited me out for drinks, I declined, but then I went over and <clears throat> sat in their living room and told them, you know, confessed. And uh, 
So it went from there. And, uh, you know, I said I was going to go to the elders and resign and, and all of that. And um, the legal the legal piece rolled from there. Yeah. So you lost your position at, as pastor at Bella Vista and your teaching gig at GRTS. And mm-hmm. so here you are, you know, and and now you you're immediately canceled, you know, really you're canceled. So, you know, how did you, how did you make it? You know, it's, and I, and I look back on it and and God is so good. Um, I I can't tell if my story at this point is different from others. Uh, It feels different from what I read, but you got to remember I'd spent 10 months emotionally obsessed uh, with this person um, fear, marginally suicidal. I lost a fifth of my body weight in four months. I mean, it was, my hair was, was literally turning gray before my children's eyes. Uh, I, I was in a, just a horrible place. And then suddenly as my whole world was caving in, all of that stress went away. Mm. I mean, suddenly I was not facing that, the kind of the blinders had come off. My wife and I were reconciling my, I, it, it was, there was a sense of, uh, you know, Paul with the, with the scales falling off because when suddenly everything explodes, you can't lie to yourself anymore. And for those first couple of months, I, I was actually feeling a, a kind of odd euphoria mm. of like having my mind back and, and having my family back and enjoying eating again and being with my family. And so I really, I really passed this, the, the first few months of the horrors, you know, as the court things were winding out in us in a really kind of bliss and I look back on it as a gift from God because I don't know how I would have survived it if I'd actually had to focus on it. But we, I had all I could think was, "Wow, this is awful!" But thank God I'm not back where I was in June. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not there. Yeah. So, and my wife, God bless her, stuck with me through it all, and that's her story to tell. Um, and she is going to be joining and, us yes. to tell her story in just a few minutes. That's right. The, 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 if there was a downside to it, it it was that it created a kind of comedy of errors between me and the church elders because all of my sort of placid peace looked to them like impenitence. Mm. And and so that created a, a, a whole series of miscommunications and, and, and gave me a lot of thoughts about what does repentance actually look like or what do we think repentance should be or what kinds of manifestations count mm-hmm. as repentance. Because at the moment, I, I, I wasn't feeling anything except relief. Mm. Um, and so who, who had your back when everything came crashing down in, in 20 seconds? Well, the, the institutions for which I worked, of course, were, were in kind of crisis management. So they had policies, HR things. So it was difficult. It's difficult for them to respond to those, those kinds of things. Uh, so a lot of the professional and church relationships more or less went away. Uh, because of that sort of iron curtain that descends around these things, but we had a, we had a couple of individuals. I don't know, should I name them? I don't. Sure. I, I feel like I should in <laughs> yeah, a sense of a yeah, sense of gratitude. Yeah. Dave Beelan, yeah. who is uh, the retired former senior pastor at Madison Square Christian Reformed, he and I had spoken at some conferences together re- very recently, even, and he just called me up and said, "Jeremy, I you know I read the papers. What mm-hmm. do you need?" And so mm-hmm. uh, he came and just sat on the ash heap with me and wow. said some really hard things some important hard things mm-hmm. and uh, ask me hard questions. And then uh, Sharon Garlow Brown, who I understand you've had on the show before. Yeah. Uh, she and I had team taught some, uh, some courses at the seminary and she also came out and she, she's been a faithful friend and served as my spiritual director for the last 10 years. And so she's played a really long standing role. And then we had a few personal friends and, and our family, both my wife and I's family were, were really supportive. Um, a real study and how do we not, um, how do we not approve or condone, you know, right. your horrible, you know, your, your, your toxic cocktail of bad choices, but you're still our kid, you know, you're still mm-hmm. our son-in-law. Um, and they stood with us. Mm. So I think that combination was enough. Uh, it was enough to see us through. What do you say to the person whose life has just come crashing down because they have messed it up themselves? They've made the choices. They've committed the sins. They've burned the bridges. And now they realize, what in the heck was I thinking? What do you say yep. to that person? Yeah, don't try to fix it. Hmm. And I know that may not be count, that may be counterintuitive, but our instance, our instinct in the moment, in the moment of the crisis. Now I'm not talking years later when you're in a rebuilding phase, but in the crisis of the moment, our inst- our instincts are how do I salvage? Hmm. How do I salvage? How do I? How do? Because I had this long. There was a month delay between what happened at the church or between my resignation at the church and my resignation at the seminary. 
because my resignation at the seminary didn't take place until the press broke the story. So I was still living a kind of double life. Why? Because I'm trying to hold on to employment in that mm-hmm. other job. And I'm like, the elders, elders, you can't, you can't say anything to the seminary. That's, you know. And so there's still a sense of a kind mm-hmm. of self-deception at work where right. you're still trying to preserve the bits and pieces you can. That's very understandable. But in the end, I, you know, there's a sense that you're going to have to let that go. Hmm. The consequences of your choices, you get to pick your choices. You don't get to pick your consequences. Mm-hmm. They're going to be what they're going to be. And the faster you can sort of come to grips with the fact that your consequences are going to be what they're going to be and ease into them and accept and embrace responsibility and stop trying to fix, repair, and salvage, the faster you're going to be able to start to rebuild. Jeremy, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. I'm just so convinced that as we have this conversation this morning, there's freedom out there for people who are them themselves in, you know, just sitting in the consequences of the decisions that they That's made right. yeah. along the way and don't see the hope in that and don't see what God can do in that. So we're excited um, to hear your story unfold. But you've shared with us about how self-deception was so much a part of this journey. There were all these decisions along the way and you had to commit to yourself to this lie over and over and over over again. again. Tell us why self-destruction is so hard to avoid once you get that ball rolling. Well, it's, there's an objects in motion tend to stay in motion kind of thing. And the first lie is easy. Um, you may even believe it. And the second lie is actually easier. And then the third lie is a necessity. Hmm. Um, I remember very early on when I first began to realize, boy, I'm in trouble and I don't know what to do and I don't know how to find this. I actually started looking around for spiritual direction. And I, uh, I called, uh, I called a faculty, a couple of faculty members said, who, who should I talk to? And they said, well, go over here. He's a, he's a spiritual director of pastors. So he, you know, this is the guy you want to talk to. So I went over and I sat down and he's a, also was also a pastor at a local church at that time. And I sat down and I went in there saying, I think I need some spiritual direction. And before that meeting was over, I was, I was ugly crying in his office, just spilling out all this junk. Don't know how to get out of it. This is awful. Like that. And his response to me in that moment, at least this is how I remember it. I, I've, we've, we've talked a lot since, and I'm not convinced this is what he said. But what I heard was, well, if you were a pastor in my denomination, based on what you've said, I'd have you up before the board of directors and you'd never, you'd never pastor in our denomination again. Mm. I, again, I don't know that that's what he said, but that's what I heard. And my response in the moment was, well, I guess pastors in your denomination have learned really well how to hide. Yeah. Um, hmm. And again, I don't, I don't fault him for that response. He's a good friend, and he's, he's, he's done lots for and with me since. But in that moment, what that told me in that moment was, I have to hide. Hmm. If anyone, if if a whiff of this comes out, I'm, I'm done. And for clarification, was that before or after the exposure? This is this was way back at the beginning of the, of the emotional affair. Okay. I mean, yeah. it, it's just wow. when I started to begin, and I, I knew I was in trouble, but I didn't know how to get out. Who do you talk to? I can't tell my elders; they'll fire me. Right. Yeah, you reached out and you got talked to the hand, which made you go into hiding. Right. And again, I think he he was a he was. Again, that's what I heard. I don't think it's what he said. Okay. But in my state of mind, you begin sure. to feel how fear begins to dominate. And once you're afraid, you, defenses go up and you try to control. And as the thing begins to snowball, you're suddenly, I mean, you're juggling more and more balls, just waiting for the day. And you know, you're, you're like a dead man walking because you know sooner or later the ball's going to drop. You can't hide it forever. But what do you do? And so there's a despair mm-hmm. that, um, that I think was the genesis of the depression. And maybe somebody's in that place right now and they're in so deep and they're hearing you say you went to somebody and it wasn't safe. Mm-hmm. What should they do? Is there anybody who's safe? There are. There are people who's safe. And, and all I can say is his recommendation was go to your elders now and speak. Mm. Speak the truth. And had I, had I done that at, I, that point. at that point, I'm convinced there would have been restoration and healing. But I went back and instead of doing that, I talked with, you know, my, my compadre and, uh, and we were both afraid because we would both lose our jobs. And so we kind of mutually talked each other out of it. Mm. So there's a sense of you can hear the bullet coming, but you can't turn. Mm. And so for people headed, and I will say this less to people who are headed for self-destruction and more to people who love those people and are watching it happen. I want to tell you there's, 
there's, I, I hate to say it, there's not a lot you can do. By the way, that was a beautiful image. You can see the bullet coming, mm-hmm. but you can't turn. In my mind's eye, I just saw this bullet in slow motion. It's a, and that's how it feels. That's and exactly how it feels. It takes me to the show The Flash, mm-hmm. where sometimes they do stuff like that, where the bullet's coming and mm-hmm. it's in slow motion and the Flash is trying to turn. So good on you. Well played there. Oh, wait, thank you. Thank you. It's actually a ch- t- chapter title in the book as well. <laughs> oh, that's nice. Awesome. Yeah. Okay, no, but back see, to this. but but yeah, that's but that's the thing. Yes, and all I can all I can tell you is you have to remember because and 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 Denise, when my wife will, will be here in a little bit, when she speaks, she'll be able to attest to this. You can do everything in your power, and but you'll discover quickly you lack the power to change someone else mm. when they're in a dark place. You can be with them and need to be with them and the patience and the love and all of that, but it's not you. You lack the power to change the heart of another human being, mm. and you just have to remember that they don't belong to me. They never did. They were gods. They are gods now, and God is going to have to be the one who breaks into that moment because God alone knows what it's going to take. And for me, it took my name showing up in the newspaper to break me. Mm-hmm. That's what it took. Mm. I couldn't have predicted that. Denise couldn't have known that. The elders couldn't. Nobody knew that except God, mm. and that's, that's what it's going to take. Mm. Um, and everybody's bottom of the well is different. God alone knows what it is. So what I mean there is if you've got somebody that's headed toward destruction— I mean that as a piece of encouragement. Relax, release. Mm. It's not your job to fix them. Wow. God does. I'm not the Messiah. That's right. I'm not the Messiah. Wow. Your and my brokenness and greatest failures can become beautiful through Jesus Christ. That's why I love Jesus so much. We've got Dr. Jeremy Grinnell with us, a PhD from Calvin Seminary, taught 15 years at Grand Rapids Theological Seminary, preaching pastor, was at Bella Vista Church in Rockford, went through an emotional affair and almost died because of his depression. And in 15 seconds of folly, he was looking in the window of the woman he was having an emotional affair with. It became public, and he lost everything. Lost his job, lost uh, you know, his pastoring, his teaching at the seminary, but did not lose his family. No. And his dear wife is here. Yeah, Denise, it is a joy to have you with us this morning. And I have about a million questions for you. I know I don't have time for a million questions, but one of them is, as the story has been unfolding, I kind of had this um, misunderstanding, I guess, that when it became public is when you became aware. But that's not true. No, it's not. I saw it happening. I saw it developing. And it broke my heart to watch that happen, to see my husband get further and further away from me and to start being more interested in this other person. Hmm. One of the things I saw happening is they would text each other mm-hmm. constantly. And when it started coming during dinner and he would jump up from the table and go run over and answer her texts, I'm like, I knew it was mm-hmm. getting worse and worse. And he'd get up in the middle of the night and go talk to her on text in the middle of the night. And I just saw my husband getting further and further away from me. So what was your part of the story? He's having that experience. You're, you're watching it happen. Were you reaching out to other people? Um, what advice were you being given as you walked it out? And I guess ultimately, what made you decide to stay? Oh, there are plenty of sad stories there because, because he was a pastor. That was one of those things that you feel like you need to hide it. You yep. can't talk to many people about it. Not a lot of people are safe. I did go to a friend and talk about it, and as I would go and just need to, you know, get it off my heart and just you know share how sad I was and how hurt I was about this, and the advice I got was you need to stand up to him, you need to tell him it's it's wrong, you need to, um, and I felt like I was given advice to leave, mm-hmm. and that I needed to be myself, be a woman, and not have to take this from my spouse. Um, some of the sad stories are that. He would say to me that he didn't love me anymore, but he couldn't leave me or he would lose his job because pastors who go through divorce don't usually last. And that was really, really hurtful. And so when I would share that with my friend, she would say, well, that's wrong. You shouldn't take that in a marriage. And it really destroyed our friendship. Mm -hmm. And it was very, very hard to do that. So there was very few people, though, to talk to. And I felt like I had to go more and more into myself to um, for that strength, because I really couldn't get it from other people. Was there a point at which you confronted him and said, 
yeah, I know what's, I'm aware of what's going on. Yes. Yeah, I, yes, there was. Many times. Yeah, there were, yeah, yeah. But he couldn't hear it or it, it didn't matter to him. Yeah, yeah. So what made you decide to stay? I, this may be surprising. I'm not sure people believe it because as they see the story, when they see the story, when everything blew up, that's the first time most people saw it. For mm-hmm. me, when he came and told me after it happened, I saw how broken he was. I saw, I saw the, it felt like the scales had lifted from his eyes. And he's like, I've been believing a lie about this other person all of this time. And she's not what I thought. She doesn't love me like I thought. And I saw him begin to come back, but begin to have that lie that he had told himself throughout this time crumble. It's like the thread got pulled, right? And you're like, oh, there's hope. This whole thing could unravel. So I saw him beginning to come back. Mm -hmm. Mm. But that was the exact moment when everyone else found out and they were devastated. Mm. So for me, it was finally our miracle of him returning and getting starting to the healing process. Mm-hmm. And that was for me, yes, when I had the hope of being able to be back together with him. Denise and Jeremy, I just got to tell you, it's just a beautiful thing to sit down together and have this conversation with you and be honest about hurtful things. I know that's hard. Thank you for your authenticity this morning. Um, because it does, like when we hear, when we hear your story, There's a place in each of us where hope gets planted, like a seed of hope that God can do that. You know, if he did it for you, he can do it again. So thank you for being brave and telling your story. That makes me think of something someone said to me when there was some really hard times that we, that I was going through and I'm like, is this ever going to get better? Is this ever going to, is my marriage going to last? And someone said to me, I will hold that hope for you when you can't hold, hold Mm. it yourself. Mm. And that's exactly what I needed is somebody there that could see that it could get better Mm -hmm. and believe in that when I couldn't believe. Amen to that, man. We need people like that in our lives. I'm so glad you had someone like that. So I do want to talk about Denise. I'm really curious how how you experienced the church once they became aware. I'm sure like, you know, right out the gate, obviously, Jeremy, you shared a lot of your story was hidden. There was a point at which, Denise, you were aware of what was going on and seeing it unfold. But once the church became aware, how did they respond? And how did that bless you or hurt you? Like, what was that experience for you? Honestly, I've probably blocked a lot of it because there is so much overwhelming emotions that are involved in something like that. When someone finds out somebody that they looked up to and admired and something bad happened um, and I would get all kinds of, you know, sobbing and overwhelming. It's just Mm. so much that I felt like I had to push some people away because I couldn't take it. But in, in general, I would get the a lot of the, oh, you poor girl, oh, you poor wife, and and some of that. And I'm like, this isn't helpful. Mm-hmm. How do I get through this? How, I wanted someone to be able to tell me how I could survive something like this. Um, I had the church leadership come to me and say, oh, my goodness, what happened? What should we do? What? Why did he do this? And I felt like they were asking me for advice on how yeah, to handle yeah. it. And that was really hard. That was really awkward. Um, like I felt like, you know, I'm, I'm on the inside of this thing. How can I answer that? Right. But in general, as we went along with what, what they found out is it ended up coming down to, they said to him, you've hurt the people in the church. Um, this is too, this is too hard for them. You need to take a break. You need to step down. And I also remember Jeremy at that time saying, Oh, I can still do this. I can still preach. And he wasn't, he didn't want to lose that because that yeah. was his, you know, the, the thing that he loved to do that God had given him. Mm-hmm. But the elders said you needed to take a break from that. And they said, but Denise, you and the kids can come to church, but your husband can't. Oh, so it wasn't just, we don't want you to carry out your responsibilities. It was, we don't want you to show yeah, up Yeah, it was here. the idea that it was, it was, it would be hurtful for me to be in, in the building for people to interact with me because sure. the sense of betrayal and harm was, was yeah. so great. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, but the results for you was, what what are you supposed to do in that point? I had to choose between my church or my spouse. And that was so hard. And when I came to that moment and said, do I 
leave my spouse every Sunday alone at home. Grieving. In a bad place. Yeah. Grieving, right. yes. And go to church and worship with these people who kicked him out and can't love and forgive him. I couldn't do it. No, I didn't say that. I could have. I could have continued to fake it. I could have continued to go. I could have said, I want to be there. Instead, I chose my spouse to say, if they can't, ex- if they can't accept him, then I'm going to stay with him. Mm-hmm. And there's other elements involved, too. You all have a family. Yes. So this, those are things to say. I'm making a choice for my kids, too. Right. And... I've learned as I've gone through this journey that I can't say that there are right and right decisions per se, but that was the right thing for me at that time mm-hmm. to choose my spouse over my church even. What would it have looked like for the church to respond in a way that would have uh, created space for you to heal? If grow? Jesus were in the church, <laughs> like he is in the church, but if he was there in the flesh, right? what would it have looked like? There is, a, well, there is an odd phenomenon. I, I'm not sure how how to address this is systemically in the church, but there is a phenomenon where if if someone thing goes wrong in the church with a staff member or even a even a congregant sometimes, the notion is it's too painful to have you here. We don't know what to do with you. It's hurtful to others. You have to go somewhere else and heal. Go find another church mm-hmm. deal. And it's never stated that way. And I certainly understand that victims and perpetrators need space and you can't always be together. But uh, the church I think the church often just simply doesn't have practices and policies for how to practice redemption and restoration of its own. Mm-hmm. It can do it for other people who come sure, in, sure, sure. but for its own, they have to go someplace else. We end up transferring our wounded to other hospitals. Mm-hmm. One of the things that they did do at the church was to assign some of the elders to us to meet with Jeremy and can stay connected with him. So I know that they tried. I know that they wanted to um, not leave us alone and, and not just throw us out there. I think that's difficult, though. As you say, we, the church isn't good at this. They, we don't have good practices. Mm-hmm. And I think as I've now had to watch other people or been more aware of other churches that go through this, is to have programs or have people that are skilled in this to be able to come alongside and be an advocate. I think one of the things Jeremy taught, learned about, he's like, I need an advocate on my side to say the words I don't know how to say mm-hmm. when I'm the one who did the wrong thing. How do I how do I speak without being defensive? How do mm-hmm. I tell them I've I've repented and be heard. So I think those are a good thing that as we've walked this walk and thought about it is how to have an advocate for that, that family that is hurting or that person who has done the wrong. I know you're on your way to, to work, Denise, and we don't have a ton of time with you, but I just did want to ask if there was anything on your heart beyond what the questions that I asked you that you wanted to share as part of your story Oh yes. Before you go. Yes, as with this one of the things that has oh that has been a major part of this story is why I stayed. And there are so many times when um I had some people say, So why did you stay? Why are you there? Why are you still you can tell, at least in the middle of it, he loves someone else. Mm-hmm. Um he didn't act on it, but I could tell his heart was somewhere else and he was only staying with me because he felt he had to. And as I contemplated that, as I begged God, I begged God, can you change this? What can you do? And the answer that came back to me was that I needed to stay and love him. Is leaving or, in my case, kicking him out would not have changed the situation, would it not have made it better? Is when you, when I saw him and what he was going through and the torture he was going through, self-inflicted as it was, that having him leave would have given him nobody would have had, he'd lost his community as well. And having him there, I was, it's not something that I can say would work for all situations. And it's not something that you can guarantee, but I'm so thankful for that because Mm -hmm. it allowed the path for us to continue to work on that, for him to be in the kids' lives. And all of that has been restored now. And I look back on that and say, if I had kicked him out, if I, or I had left, how would that have made anything better? Hmm. So staying there and- (laughs) Having that hope, we talked about that a little earlier t- today, mm-hmm. is having that hope, hoping in for the future, gave us a platform to begin to still say, this isn't over, we can keep trying. And I'm very glad I did that. And it had to have taken a 
pardon me, crap ton of courage to do that. There had to have been a million times when you wanted to just. Yes. Yes. It's seems like it's sign language quit. for. That was yeah, a yeah. good one. That was a good sound effect right there. Can you do that? Can you do no, that again? I can't do it again. It just happened. It was just organic. But, you know, I, I said it before and I'll say it again before you go. Just like having you guys here is such a joy. Thank you for your courage in telling your story. Thank you for your courage in staying the course and being obedient to what God has called you to and loving him and the covenant relationship that God has given you guys. And we just celebrate with you where you are today. Yeah. So Jeremy, uh, you've been, you guys have been restored with your church that you were fired from, that you were let go from, that you couldn't go to because they asked you to create some space there. And there's been a restoration uh, yeah, and that's that itself was a long journey. There were a couple other churches of where we would where we stopped at for a couple, few years. This wasn't something that happened in six months, eight months. It took a good six, seven years. Mm-hmm. And uh, the the pastor who took over for me at Bella Vista, I I actually sort of knew from college. We were at college at the same time and recognized each other. And so he took me out to coffee and sat down and and it was remarkable. It showed great wisdom, far more wisdom than I had when I took over. But he sat down and he said, Jeremy, thank you. I want to thank you for your ministry there. Thank you for what you, and he like prayed. And I had had, that was so important to me in the moment because I thought all the time I'd spent at that church was wasted. Mm-hmm. You know, it's what, once right. you, once you screw up, it's gone forever. It's of no value. Mm-hmm. And for him to sort of affirm that and then invite us back. And then over a course of two slow years of rehabilitation, we found our way back to the church and he created a space for me to sit down with the congregation mm-hmm. Uh, to rep- I mean, there had been a confession and repentance in the wake of, you know, years prior, all mm-hmm, of that, mm-hmm. but now to sort of uh, bring people up to speed on our story, to ask the forgiveness once again, and God bless them. Bella Vista Church has always had this history of embracing sort of the outcast. It's part of its DNA. The ragamuffins. They did, and they proved it with, with me. Uh, long line of people, they just uh, spontaneously broke into this, like, wave of hugs, you know, wow. like that. And um, so we found ourselves kind of back at the church. I blew up in a way that we could not have orchestrated ourselves and hadn't tried. I have a story there too. There was a time when that pastor, before you ended up coming back, asked to talk to me. And I didn't even know if I wanted to talk to him. I didn't I didn't know him. He wasn't there when all of this had happened. And I struggled with it. When I finally met with him, he sat down and apologized for the church, for how that they hadn't mm. helped my family. And it was so healing for me to hear that from them, to hear that they understood the necessity or the what church should be, and church should be grace, and church should be loving in community. And I think that has been something that has helped me to be able to work through my bitterness and to be able to come back to church and back to God. Yeah, so I want to give I want to give credit to Dennis Dennis Moles as the pastor who who did that. He, he deserves his name on the air for that one. Our God is a God of a thousand second chances, and for that, I personally am very grateful. Dr. Jeremy Grinnell has been courageous to to share the story of his own failure and brokenness, and and we're so grateful for that. If you just checked in, Jeremy was the preaching pastor at Bella Vista Church in Rockford, taught nearly 15 years at Grand Rapids Theological Seminary, got into an emotional affair during his ministry, went through a near-fatal clinical depression, In 15 seconds of foolishness, he threw it all away, losing everything. He was looking in the window of the woman that he had an emotional affair with, and and it all became public, and everything crashed and burned. But God has been rebuilding. God has been doing some rebuilding from the rubble. And I feel like every time I share your story, I'm telling on you, Jeremy. (laughs) No, it's breaking my heart every time you retell it. Like, oh. Yeah, yeah. yeah, But uh, thank you for letting me tell that part of your story. And uh, just for your courage to, to put your, I guess, maybe your worst failure out there. Well, I, we all have failures. And I think we do a good job, or at least we know we're supposed to, sympathize, work with victims. We know we're supposed to take their side, support them, things like that. And I affirm all of that. But I, I, I wonder at times that we don't do as well with sort of with helping the perpetrators mm-hmm. uh, regain uh, dignity 
recon, uh, restoration, those sorts of things. And it's become a real, it's become a gap I think I'm supposed to stand in because if we really care about victims, we have to care about perpetrators. Yeah. Because if they have no paths of redemption, you leave them in despair mm. and people without hope do bad things and create new victims. And isn't that the story? Isn't is. that the great grand story that's going on is redemption? Yeah. They, one piece of the story that um, maybe I should have asked when Denise was still here, but I would love to hear is just how the two of you reconciled the point at which you, Jeremy, mm. you know, realized because all along she's kind of seeing this happen right. and confronting you and you guys are having conversations, but there wasn't an onus on your part. So what did that look like when you said, you know what, it is me and I did do this. And how did the two of you reconcile the relationship? Well, it, it's rather understated in the sense that you just described what happened. There came this moment as things began to, to unfurl and, you know, my, my head sort of emerged from the places it had mm-hmm. been firmly lodged for the 10 months prior. Um, you know, I just, I, I told her, I just sort of, I confessed it all. So this is, this is what's going on. And I'm sorry. I, I can see now what an ass, what a, what a jerk I have been, um, this whole time. And, um, and it could have been a much more lengthy and extended process, but she's a magnificent woman yeah. and she extended forgiveness, uh, easily, quickly. Um, and uh, so there, and then there was a lot of counseling involved um, and, uh, you know, some couples counseling and things like that. And uh, we just sort of started over. And what I've discovered is that, you know, for there to be newness of any kind with the church, with friends, with relationships, you've got to, you've got to build on newness. There has mm-hmm. to be newness. You can't just go back to the relationship you had before. Yeah. You begin to rebuild a new one. And that's what we've done. Our marriage doesn't look like it did before. It mm-hmm. looks different. And that's a mixture of goods and bads. There are real losses, right? Mm -hmm. When you go through something like that, things change that don't come back, but you discover new things and you get those. Adam and Eve don't get the garden back, but they do get Jesus. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. You know, what's so compelling about your story, Jeremy, is that it's a, it's the human story and it's, it's my story. It's your story. You listening right now. I really identify with, you know, living with shame it's something I've lived with since I was a boy, really, uh, because of things that happened to me and a lot of things I did. Living with shame, living with a sense of failure, living with the memory of people I've hurt, living with unexpected consequences, learning to forgive and be forgiven and to forgive myself. Yeah, this is, this is where I live, bro. So talk to yeah. that. Well, that's actually where the title, I mean, you were listing sort of chapter titles from the, the book, and that's actually where the, t- the title of the book came from, The Bellowing of Cain. Mm. You know, Kiss Cain has that moment where he looks to the heavens, and though his consequences are just, uh, he just, I can't bear it. Yeah. By the way, you're coming out with this book called The Bellowing of Cain, which is your story. Yes. And we're going to give that some due time here Sure. Before we wrap up the show, but anyway, but living yeah, with these but things. But that's the point, that, that, that cry from the heart of the person who's guilty. Guilty is sin, you know, not, not exchanging that for a moment, not minimizing that for a moment, but, but yet even in the midst of their just guilt, feels like all of the, the things that begin to cascade goes well beyond sort of the just desert. And that's one thing that it's different for perpetrators and victims, like the role of shame. You know, victims sometimes feel shame. And yeah, we very sure. rightly try to talk them out of it. Like, you have nothing to be ashamed right. of. That's that You don't need to feel that. Do you say that to the person who did the bad thing? Hmm. Now, there's a sense that, you know, it's almost pathological to not feel shame when you do something wrong. Sure. Do you want the murderer yeah. to not feel shame over the no. murder? I mean, so uh, it plays a different role. Mm-hmm. And and so how do you live with that? Uh, there, was a, there was a young woman. I used to go do some sermon writing in a little pub in Grand Rapids because nothing, you know, promotes good sermon writing like a Hefeweizen. And she, she would come up to me. I shouldn't have said that, but I did. Well, she, she came up to me and just the little the barkeep, she came up to me one night and said, you know, I've started going to your church. She'd just been through an ugly divorce. And, uh, and my sermons were really helping her. Hmm. Four months later, the, everything blows up. Six months after that, I, I just happened to ask the youth, the, the children's pastor, youth pastor, says, what about this? What about this young lady? So oh, she's never been back. And I think I've died a thousand deaths over that. What mm-hmm. happened to this, this, this poor young, you know, 20 something mother 
of mm-hmm. kids going mm-hmm. through you know, divorce. My sermons were helping, and now and now she's gone, and now so she's walked out of the church. How do I know? I have. How do you live with that? And all all I can say is that in the end, you have to realize that people that are lost to you are not lost to God. Mm-hmm. God knows where she went, and um, God can reach her where she is. And I can, and I feel to this day, um, I see in, uh, at night all the, the faces of, of the people, uh, because the church had doubled in the, the two years that I'd been there in size, so there were lots of faces, and then it contracted back. So the blast radius was huge. Mm-hmm. Um, and you just have to say, oh, you have to give that to God too. Yeah. Yeah, so you're talking about the shame you feel of of having betrayed, you know, the people that, that you were shepherding. And so, you know, this is, this is, you know, where, where I come from is that, you know, I know that I know that I know that I'm forgiven. Mm. Yes. But feelings of shame will, are still there, Mm -hmm. you know, and I've had people say, you know, you're forgiven, you know, move on, dude. And that's the voice. And I hate to be callous about it, but that people who say that's the voice of a person who's never really really looked themselves in the mirror and seen the evil. Mm. Um, There is something very purifying about shame. There's a line in The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. It says, shame is a very nourishing drink. If you will drink it to the bottom, you will find it very nourishing and healing. If you do anything else with it, it will destroy you. Mm. You can own shame. Mm. You can acknowledge it and you can make your bed in it and recognize that you're forgiven. Mm. If you try to simply ignore it and push it away as though you had never done anything wrong, I think you're ignoring the actual changes to the shape of your soul that sin does. Sin changes the shape of our soul in such a way that those those feelings that we now have become, there's they're something you have to almost sit in the middle of mm-hmm. and own. And you never get past owning that. Mm-hmm. But that is not, does not stand in in contradiction to forgiveness. Mm-hmm. There's a responsibility I have for the bad choices I made that God's forgiveness, the forgiveness of the people, the forgiveness of my wife, the forgiveness of, of anyone out there still does not absolve me of the fact that I did these things and they're part of my story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's my story. What forgiveness does and what reconciliation with God does is make it bearable so that it now sits in a context so mm-hmm. that the spirit can now take shame and do something with it. Thanks so much for listening. Questions or comments? Text us at 800-968-8930. That's 800-968-8930.